0: This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. So today, folks, on the podcast, I have uh, Shane Claiborne, who is... um, an author, an activist. He is, according to Wikipedia, the leading voice on modern monasticism, which we may get into. (laughs) Um, He is a husband, and he's my friend, and he's a guest in the podcast.
1: I'm a disciple of Corey.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, dude, I'm just, I'm really excited to have you on. Thanks so much for being here. Why don't you just say hi to folks and just...
1: Yeah, man, I'm I'm so glad to be on. Hey, everybody, um, stoked to talk, man.
0: So we met we met a couple of years ago at a at one of those events that were like supposed to be like you know big movers and shakers, you know, secret meeting that I had no business being at. And I I, I remember meeting you in this room. And before I met you, I told some friends of mine, I was like, Hey, I'm in, you know, I'm at such and such a place. And and this guy named Shane Claiborne just spoke, he was awesome, and they're like, Shane Claiborne and like you. You talk. You, so you're there with Shane Claiborne and I remember how excited they were. So I came over and when I met you, you gave me your number and you're like, let's stay in touch. You were like one of the most humble people that i would ever met compared to the amount of like, oh my gosh, so like, how, what, what fuels that kind of humility? Like how are, and that's maybe a strange question to ask, but it does seem kind of rare to have people with some, some sort of influence nationally or internationally still remain humble and just normal people (laughs) it's a a funny question you know
1: for uh for me to talk about why how I'm so humble
0: (laughs) like Moses who wrote I'm the most humble person in all the world so go ahead
1: that's right well you know I mean I I think that having a community where you've got your feet on the ground and you've got you know authentic relationships and stuff like that like I, I don't exist in just a public realm of traveling and speaking and writing. I mean, that's a piece of my life, but I've got a community that um, I, I really call home. And, you know, I think that that makes a, a big difference. People are uh, less impressed at you. See you at your best and at your worst, you know. But I've also been surrounded by people who um, I think both have influence and humility. And it's a beautiful kind of cocktail, you know, those holding those together. So. One of my friends said a prayer he prays a lot is, uh, Lord, forgive me for thinking too highly of myself. Lord, forgive me for thinking too lowly of myself. Lord, <laughs> forgive me for thinking of myself so much. Let's move on, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, man. That is, that is really cool. So, so now, if you go online and, and Google you, you'll find this strange term monasticism, right? That describes the the work that you do. And I know that's a term that people that understand church history may understand and maybe people who do a lot of reading and, and theologians may understand. But for the person who doesn't know what monasticism is, why is that something that's attributed to you?
1: Yeah. So, what, what you know, the the monasticism language isn't the only language we use for what we're doing. Um, mean, you know, if I talk to my neighbors over here and I'm like, "Yeah, we're you know, new monastic community," <laughs> I mean, they be like, "I know y'all are a little nasty, but what?" You know, so I I, I think. Um, but when I but you know, I have had a chance to like look at church history and do some work in seminary and stuff. And what what you find is that. There are these renewals that have often happened from the monastic tradition, which um, the the word means mono, so it means to to will one thing, to love one thing. So it's really to pursue God, uh, like um, that that scripture Jesus tells, where it's it's like the pearl that you, you found, so it's worth leaving everything over. Mm-hmm. And so traditionally, you know, monastic communities, like you know, the nuns and the monks, Mother Teresa, the Desert Fathers, folks like that, um, have. Um, taken vows of, of chastity, of, of simple living, um, of giving their life to serve others, um, you know, things like that. So I think what, what it does help for me uh, is to correct our kind of belief-only Christianity, you know, that doesn't have much teeth on it sometimes, and it's just about having a doctrinal statement and accepting Jesus. And and I think that's a part of our faith, but traditionally, we've had orthodoxy, which is right... Doctrine, right living, and orthopraxis, which is right practices, right living, and the monastic tradition kind of holds those together. You know, where you you believe things at the heart of our faith, but that also translates into real life commitments. And so, one of the things we did, Corey, like ten years ago or something, was we gathered a bunch of communities together—Catholic, Protestant, Charismatic, you know, historic Black Church, all kinds of like different folks together—and we tried to um, identify what are some of the um, the the practices the praxis of our faith today in the world we're living in and we came up with twelve of those um, so that's you know that's what most people know when they think of uh, the new monasticism or what would we call the twelve marks and they're they're pretty basic Christian commitments though things like a commitment to nonviolence to sharing possessions and living simply racial justice is one of those um, prayer is one of those caring for the earth the environment living together in community. So we kind of hashed out, you know, about a dozen different commitments. And and um, and th- in the old communities, they would have called it their rule of life, you know? And mm. the different fasting communities had a charisma or kind of a vibe about them, you know? And so I think mm. that's why some people have, um, you know, made made that connection, which is, you know, not a bad one at all, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, you got into so many things just now that like, I'm like, dude, which one, where do I start? Because you talked about nonviolence, you talked about racial justice you talked about caring for the earth. And I feel like in a lot of evangelical circles these days, those things are sort of outside of the spectrum of faith and practice and what Christians should be about. So, I mean, for you, I know recently you, I, you and I saw each other when you were doing your beating, beating guns tour. Would you talk a little bit about that, the, the anti-violence? We'll start with the, with the nonviolent commitment that you have and, and sort of what drives you to, to be anti-guns, to be Uh, against the death penalty. Let's talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, really, one of the things that I I like to start with is is, um, uh, 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 the the fact that what we've done with what it means to be pro-life in America, Mm -hmm. especially in evangelicalism, white evangelicalism in particular, is we've kind of narrowed that down so much to one issue um, of abortion um, that we would we would be more accurate, I think, most pro life folks to just say that we're anti abortion or we're pro birth, you know, because we just kind of thought about that. And and the irony is that um, you can say you're pro life in America and be pro death penalty, pro guns, pro military, right. you know, right. pro death right. on almost every consideration. Exactly. So right. like for me, I I I I do believe um, in. Um, being for life and that every human being is made in the image of God. And anytime we squash someone's dignity or life, um, when their life is cut short, uh, it grieves the heart of God. It should grieve our heart, you know? So um, that's part of why I kind of expanded, uh, at least for me personally, what it means to be pro-life is to to be consistent and to have a consistent ethic of life. Um, The early church had that. I mean, they spoke, consistently against death and they did talk about abortion uh, but they also talked about the gladiatorial gains they talked about um, state sanctioned violence they were adamantly against the death penalty and against militarism so it's hard to find that consistency I think especially with like our two-party system and stuff like that you know but that that's what I I care about Um, and it's and part of why I wrote my last two books on these life issues um, was because Christians have been one of the biggest obstacles uh, Mm. uh, on the death penalty and gun violence. Um, In fact, the death penalty wouldn't have succeeded in America, wouldn't stand a chance without the support of Christians. And that broke my heart. You know, that 85% of executions are happening in the Bible Belt. And it's where Christians are most concentrated (laughs) that the death penalty has survived. And uh, it's very similar with guns. As I started researching guns um, and gun violence. Um, uh, you find that that one of the things that struck me is that Christians uh, uh, own guns at a higher rate than the general population. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so I, you know I thought, man, we need to we need to think about these because they're they're not just political issues. these these are deeply spiritual and moral issues yeah. too. Well, they're
0: human issues, you know that's what do yeah. today they the end of the day, they're, they're, they affect human beings. And you've told me some stories before about, uh, just what you do at, when, you, when you do the beating gun ceremonies and, and, and liturgies. Um, you talked about a woman who had lost, I think she lost her son to gun violence or something like that. Could you tell that story? Because it's, it's an incredible story of, of an actual human being who was affected by gun violence, who found some sort of peace in, in the stuff that you guys are doing.
1: Yeah, I'm actually going to grab something here. I've got... Um couple of our tools that you, you know you and I got to do this together we've we've been doing this all over the country, but we've been taking um some of the guns that uh from the streets people donate them and sometimes we've had police and others you know donate them too, but we take these and turn them into uh garden tools so uh, yeah. that that you know this idea that really spawned from the vision of the prophets Mike and Isaiah, where they say god's people will beat their swords into plows or spears into pruning hooks taking uh our weapons and transforming, uh, forming them into tools that cultivate life and and that are designed for life rather than death. So that's what, you know, got us going on this. We, we invited people to donate guns and we, they just started pouring in. I mean, we've had hundreds of guns donated. Our first one was an AK 47. Um, but then, you know, we, as we started turning them into garden tools, there was a sense of, yeah, it's kind of symbolic, it's provocative, but then we quickly realized that it's a lot deeper than that, you know, and, and I, that first hit me is actually when we were making this one here, this was a, a handgun originally that we found in an abandoned house. Mm-hmm. And um, and instead of just our blacksmith friends, we invited the moms and dads who had uh, been directly impacted that had lost their kids to violence to take the hammer. And and this one mother in particular, Miss Ryan, as she was way, just pounding on this gun mm. with every hit of the hammer. She said, this is for my boy. Wow. And I mean, the whole place was just weeping with her, carrying that with her, you know? And, yeah. and I realized that as we've done this around the country now and, you know, 40 different cities uh, and, and not just cities, but, you know, in, in rural areas, like we are giving space for public lament and grief um, yeah. and, and allowing people's pain to be kind of channeled into something concrete and, and hopeful, you know? I mean, it, it, I, we just did one with uh, Reverend Sharon Risher who lost her mom and two cousins in the Emanuel AME shooting the, in the mm-hmm. church in, in uh, South Carolina. And as she beat on it, she um, named every one of the Emanuel Nine, you know, her friends and wow. family ones there that lost their lives so there's so much behind it um and, and she told me afterwards you know it healed a part of her heart you know as, as she's doing that so it's it's incredible and uh, so we're we're actually transforming metal but it's bigger than that you know we're we're also like um honoring the the pain of our communities and 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 dreaming of of a world where where um we stand on the side of life instead of death man yeah, yeah man
0: dude it's amazing so there's like you you make very strong stands for the things that you believe in: nonviolence, taking care of the planet, uh, those sorts of things. And I'm, I'm just knowing you, I know those things have theological basis for them. So some of the questions that I have uh, are are about things like pro-life, abortion. I, I once was following on Twitter, and there was a a, a young woman look, this. Who really kind of took you to task? I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, but she, she, she came from the standpoint that a woman's body should just be a woman's woman's choice to do whatever she wants to. Um, with all the different theories and schools of thought that there are, or in, in theologically speaking, about some of these things, where do you find like the grounding for the things, your convictions, things you believe? Is that in community? Is that in uh, things that you've read, or just? something you trust from within your gut
1: Mm. yeah man well i i think that that my starting point for a lot of this is uh kind of having the audacity to say like the author of life cares about life you know and (laughs) anytime like a life is lost like that matters to god god takes that personally um and Sometimes I, I, I'm always, you know, I am guarded when I think about this, you know, that my social location as a white male thinking about some of these issues. But I also I, I can't help but think that sometimes we frame these as an issue of rights, mm-hmm. and we should be thinking about them in terms of life, both the life of the mother and the child, and the same with guns. You know, like at, at a certain point, one's person one person's life can begin. It, it becomes a, 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 about conscience and morality, yeah. not just yeah. do I have the right to do this, you know, so mm-hmm. like, when it comes to abortion, um, I know, uh, uh, Bill Clinton used to say, uh, abortion should be legal, safe, and rare. And we should all work to make it rare and rare. And it's anything but rare mm-hmm. right now. I, I think some of that language is really helpful. And and frankly, if Hillary or other Democrats had used that language, I think they would have navigated the last election better, you know? Like, yeah. and, and, I, and I think like, can't we just begin there by saying we want to reduce death um, when it comes to gun violence? People go, yeah, but you know, you can take away everybody's guns, they're still going to kill people. You're know, like, that's true. I mean, we, even now people can use a pressure cooker to make a bomb. They can use a car as a weapon to drive into a crowd but there are some things that are designed to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, like AR-15s. And they're the weapon of choice in these mass shootings. So we, we are the the lone country in the industrialized world when it comes to allowing these weapons just in the hands of everybody. And and, and so I think that's where we go. This is not just about the second amendment and rights. Like I care about the second amendment and I can actually debate the second amendment with anybody. Like James Madison said uh, that, that, freedom can be endangered by the abuse of power, but freedom can also be endangered by the abuse of liberty. (laughs) Right. So like if we have unregulated guns, like it it encroaches on someone's right to live, you know? So, but, but there's a higher authority than the Bible for uh, those of us that follow Mm -hmm. Jesus. And that's where I go, man, that's where I really do expect more from the church, you know, when it comes to uh, leading on these issues Um, And there's people like Mother Teresa and Dr. King, um, who at one point did own a gun, but then began to say, we don't use the same weapons as our oppressors, you know, and Mm. became consistently against life. Dr. King was, you know, stood courageously against capital punishment and violence in every form, gun violence, the Vietnam War. And so did Mother Teresa. You know, people sometimes think of Mother Teresa for all that she did around abortion and adoption and orphanages. But she called governors the night before executions and said, you know, stand on the side of life. You don't have to do this, you know. So that's kind of what, you know, that's the common thread for me. Yeah.
0: So you spent some time with Mother Teresa, right?
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, partly because I was inspired by the, you know, her sort of authentic and witness, her credibility. And so I wrote her a letter and ended up calling India and she picked up the phone. And uh, uh, some of my college friends went over there. We worked in the orphanages. We worked in the home for the dying, you know, and it, it deeply shaped uh, who I am. And, and just one more story on this was when I was over there, I met some of the young people that were raised by her. And one of them said he was about, I don't know, 25, 30 years old. And he said, you know why we call her Mother Teresa? And I said, not really. You know, tell me about it. And he said, because she's our mom. He said she <laughs> she raised me like a lot of us were abandoned in train stations and we were kids on the street and she took us in and so, wow. she started showing me all these things that Mother Teresa had given him growing up just like any kid you know like she gave me this when I turned ten you know and, and so part of me thought man that like I think that's um, what we need more of is not just uh, we we we've got to put skin on our um, our convictions you know and and to yeah. be pro life. For Mother Teresa wasn't just about picketing abortion clinics, but she took in kids that were abandoned in train stations. She took in 14 year old moms. And that's what I think it really looks like to be pro life. And so sometimes we don't we just have ideologies, you know. Yeah, sure. Exactly. <laughs> and p- positions. And so I think we yeah. gotta, you know, those 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 convictions need to come with responsibility. And I mean, that's mm-hmm. the case in our neighborhood too. If we You know, if I'm going to tell a young person you shouldn't have an abortion, then, you know, that that might mean taking in a 14 year old girl and helping, you know, out in that situation. So, yeah.
0: And I can certainly really respect that, man, because I know that the church is often criticized, and rightfully so, because, like you said, the church just has doctrine, just makes statements, but there's very little action to back up those statements. If I'm going to boycott abortion clinics, then I have to be willing to take in uh, mothers and help the poor, because usually a lot of times it's, it's the poor who are are left with poor decisions. And sometimes that those decisions lead to being at at a, at a crossroads where like all I have in front of me are decisions that I personally don't want to want to choose either of these things, but I'm going to choose one. And, and, and so I think my tension is that I, I have women who I love and respect who want autonomy over their bodies they don't want men dictating what they do with their bodies. And I think for me as a person who is, I, I value the sanctity of life in the same way you are. I've, I've done a lot of reading about nonviolence and about the uh, about how the early church was, was into life all around, preserving not just human life, but the life of the planet, which we can get into in a little bit. Um, but do you ever have that tension when it's like there are people, actual human beings who are saying my life matters and I'm a woman and, and I, and I just, I don't want to be told what to do with my body with the, the the other side of this, like, but you're carrying a life. Do you ever feel that tension?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's the residue of the culture wars and of the, you know, two party system and all this stuff that we've made this align in the sand, you know, and, and in some ways I think, um, our inability to communicate reasonably with each other is doing a lot of damage mm-hmm. to the cause of actually reducing the number of abortions. You know, and you you pointed out some important things as you were. You know, I, I think that that poverty has uh, the the if we want to cut down the number of abortions, studies show over and over that one of the best ways that we can do that is create uh, good health care for everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that we can deal with the. Um, inequities that exist in, in our, our, our healthcare system. We can try to take care of folks, uh, you know, at all areas of their life. And I mean, one of the old quotes is that um, uh, for a lot of pro-lifers, the safest place to be is the womb, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> you want to stay, you want to stay there as long as you can, because as soon as you're born, everybody's going to abandon you, you know? So wow. I mean, that's where we go. What does it actually mean to to stand for life from the womb to the tomb, you know, um, and 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 frankly, I mean, a lot of the folks that are so passionate on abortion, when you bring up things like police uh, brutality or police violence or gun violence or the death penalty, you see how how narrow that that um, life ethic is. So, I think exactly what we're talking about. If we can, you know, even including the you know caring for the earth. I think all of these things like. It, they they have that that seamless garment as it's often said you know they have this thread of life that runs through them um and and way too often i think what we what we hear even in the pushback of like black lives matter is that all lives matter uh, but until mm-hmm. the most vulnerable lives in our society like um we can actually say with conviction that black lives matter, brown lives matter, immigrant lives matter, like, like yeah. with specificity, um, you start to see all the cracks in our life ethic, you know, and, and I think how we've sort of had been short-sighted and how we think about what it means to be pro-life.
0: Yeah, man. So you mentioned the earth a couple of times, and, and I actually love that, you know, the the, the spiritual idea of, um, you know, taking tools or weapons that were, that were aimed at violence and, and taking life and turning them into something that cultivates life. Um, I love that, I love that metaphor. Is, are there practical things that you and uh, in, in, you know, the Simple Life organization that, that you guys have thought about, been involved in that is preserving the planet or, or trying to, to encourage people to start thinking more about, about the life of this planet? Because that if you're pro-life, the life of this planet should be a part of that scope.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the there's a great uh, book. You probably read it from Walter Brueggemann, right? It's called The Prophetic Imagination. And one of the things that he talks about is sometimes we we um, kind of misunderstand the prophets and we think of them as fortune tellers, but mm-hmm. they're actually truth tellers. Yeah, uh, and sure. As you know, we, we think of the prophets as if they were trying to predict the future, but they were actually um trying to change the future by naming our present. You know, this is where we're headed. And it doesn't have to be this way. So I love that idea of the 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 kind of prophetic imagination. And you um um when when um we think of our world right now, I think there's a part of what we're saying is that like we are headed towards death and death has become so normal. We need to be the interrupters of that cycle. You know, we wow. um so um you know, there's the obvious symbolism of transforming the metal uh, of of weapons into garden tools. But I think, you know, our lives need to be plows as well, you know, where mm-hmm. we kind of cultivate nonviolence in our hearts and we live out a, a low impact life on the planet. So, you know, some of what we're doing in our neighborhood is reclaiming abandoned lots. And my wife and I were out in the garden this morning, you know, we've got backyard chickens and we've had an aquaponic system with plants and fish growing together. I mean, this is the middle of the concrete, you know, anyhow, anytime, uh, yeah. One of our row houses gets torn down. We try to reclaim that space and plant a garden, so we're growing as much food you know locally as we can for a while we've um we we had a, a greasel station where we' take wet waste vegetable oil in a, in our sister community at uh, as a recovery community uh, for folks recovering from drug addiction, but they created a micro business out of taking waste vegetable oil and making biodiesel out of it. So like reclaiming stuff, I mean, that's part of what we need to do and try to live more locally. Um, and there's a whole theology around that, you know, just as there's a, a theology that leads to the violent um, practice of the death penalty. I think how we understand Jesus's death, uh, you know, influences that. But there's also a theology about This world, that this is not our home. We're just going to heaven. And I heard a pastor literally say, That's why I can proudly drive an SUV, because I'm expediting the apocalypse. Like by running the earth into the ground, I'm quickening the return of Christ. So you can have like some really whacked out theology that actually ends up really violent. You know, I I think whether that's death penalty or creation care, we can end up twisting the scripture um, to, to, Be on the side of death rather than life, which is exactly what Jesus, I mean, Jesus's entire life from being born as King Herod was killing little boys um, as a refugee in the midst of that crisis to like dying a state sanctioned execution on the cross, you know, like he is exposing and absorbing that violence and making a spectacle to subvert it, you know? And so as we worship Jesus, it should make us very suspicious of violence. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it should. So I, I picked up the, um, uh, common book of prayer for ordinary radicals. Um, and yeah. through that, 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 and I, I'm fascinated by those prayers and by, I think it was well, seems to be the amount of work that went into that, but like, that seems like there was a lot of work that went into gathering those prayers and aggregating that. Could you talk about some of that process of putting that that thing together?
1: Totally. So we, uh, we, we started our community over 20 years ago and our roots are really activists. You know, like the, the catalyst that started the simple way here was a group of homeless moms that were living in an abandoned church. And, you know, I was a student and got involved in all that. So we became very active um and there kind of came a point where we we thought, man, what does our prayer life look like like we need to be cultivating that too you know and because we've always had a really diverse group of people here, we've had like um, charismatic folks and Quakers and Mennonites and Catholics and uh, from the beginning and so we we started trying to think about how to pray together and that the the common uh prayer book is the fruit of that really so we had like 30 different people from different traditions um uh kind of mining the treasures of our traditions in there uh so um we, we've got like 50 songs that are from all different, you know, liturgical and church traditions. We've got saints with a big S and a little S, you know, the saints that are recognized by the Catholic and Orthodox Church. And then um, kind of the heroes of, of different traditions and folks like Harriet Tubman and Oscar Romero, you know, and different people that we remember through the year. But the other thing that we, we did is we wake up remembering like this day in history. So um, we'll remember, you know, this was the day that Mandela was released from prison. This is the day that we dropped the uh, Nagasaki bomb. Um, this is the day that uh, Rosa Parks went to jail, you know, all those things. So we we kind of um, are remembering history um, as we pray. And, and, and there's, you know, prayers for the morning, midday and evening each day in there. Um, prayers for, you know, that prayers that we didn't have anything for like when someone gets hurt or killed on our block like to gather and pray like those are not things that we really had tools for so in some ways it was just pulling all that together and we we had art to it orthodox like kind of icon iconographers that created you know these original images we remember one of those we kind of focus on one of those so uh Uh, whether that's creation, care, racial justice, or whether we give some recommended reading and uh, reflection on that. So it's about prayer and action kind of going together. And sometimes prayer can be sort of a way to hide from responsibility. On the other hand, a lot of activists, I think we do better to sort of get on our knees and center ourselves, take care of our souls and realize that there's, you know, a hand at work in all this. It's not just ours. And that's, that's helpful to remember.
0: Yeah, it is, man. I think in the, it was interesting because a couple of years ago, the whole thoughts and prayers, you know, thing became, you know, this this cry for people of faith to do more than just say we're praying about this thing or the other thing. And certainly, when it came to gun violence, that that became like all we were doing was saying we we're praying. And so it's been really cool to watch you put some action to that and to give give us all a way of of responding spiritually, but also to respond with activism, with, with doing something. And so the other thing I've been really wanting to ask you about was uh, I've followed you on Twitter and you are probably one of the only people, um, certainly white evangelical. I don't, I don't know if you consider yourself white evangelical. I don't even know what that term means anymore <laughs> to be honest, but certainly like white faith leaders. You're one of the only ones that I am that I see, um, that are calling out Trump. Um, I see you doing a lot of uh, uh, sort of holding accountable for Franklin Graham. Um, what is it that drives you or, or you've given allows you to give yourself the permission that other pastors may have not that says, if someone public, a public figure, someone in power, says or does something that's counter to what I believe? I have to say something. Like, what drives that like fire and that passion to say, "Hey, I got to speak up."
1: That's really sweet, bro. I, I that's a, a uh, high compliment and from you too, man. I appreciate that. And and this this is what I I would say is as you you and I both know, like, uh, Trump becomes very important because he's a symptom of a bigger disease, and Absolutely. this is not. Uh, this is not just about Trump. I think it's about so many of the things that he has uh, surfaced in our country. Um, one of the best, uh, truest things I've I've heard said of Trump is that he didn't change America; he revealed America. Yeah, bro, and absolutely. It's, it's, it, it's also true of uh, of the of our our evangelicalism. He hasn't changed evangelicalism, but he has uh revealed it and and I mean I am deeply troubled that white evangelicalism the same people that led me to Jesus are the solid base for Donald Trump yeah, and, yeah. and 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 again it's it's my love for Jesus that puts me at odds with Trump you know like if you right, look at the right. beatitudes they're the antithesis of Donald Trump right <laughs> like the, the gospel <laughs> of Jesus looks very different from the gospel of Donald Trump for sure and, and, and the idea that many of my, uh, of our Christian leaders are defending things that are indefensible and they forfeited any integrity. I mean, even I mean, from the personal life of Donald Trump, paying off prostitutes, saying things, calling entire countries, you know, assholes. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, where do you, where do you begin? You know, I mean, he, he's very aware of this. He said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and he'll the yeah. defend yeah. me. So we Absolutely. know that that's true. Um, and, and I think what's really at stake right now is the, the, the state uh, of the church. Like, um, I mean, this is not just a political crisis in and in a, I think a, a, a racial crisis in our country. It's both of those, but it is also um, a, a spiritual and moral crisis. Um, and that's what I'm concerned about. When, when Franklin Graham says that God literally, God intervened, in the last election, to put Donald Trump in power, it's, it's not just his. It's not just his reputation that is on the line. I think right. when, when people are saying those, and we uh, as Christians um, don't challenge those, that becomes the narrative, right? When Jerry Falwell says unilaterally that Donald Trump is the dream president for Christians, he's not just speaking for Jerry Falwell. He's yeah. you know uh, speaking for for all of us, and so we've got to challenge that. And Dr. King, you know, all we got to do is go back and read the letter from the Birmingham jail again to see yeah. how, um, how uh, important this is, um, because as he said, you know, sometimes uh, what we will remember is the silence of our friends, you know, in the midst of all this. And I think the, uh, uh, you know, the white moderates were a part of the problem. And, and you know, but we, it's, it's exactly what we see right now.
0: Well, dude, I so appreciate you. I appreciate you using your voice, um, the the creativity in which you have introduced so many people to liturgies that are um, meaningful and and helping to shape our spirituality and the way we see God and the way we see Jesus and sort of a, a callback to the historical Jesus who was certainly a person who was active in dismantling um, hierarchy and and all and anything that any, any kingdom or person that elevated themselves above the other image bearers on the planet. So man, thanks so much for, for all that you do. Thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Uh, now if people want to, want to follow up with you or, or, or stay connected to what you have going on, where, where, where should we send them?
1: Yeah, man. Well, I, like, like you said, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. It's just my name, Shane Claiborne. Um, and my speaking schedules on my website uh, there too. But the, the, more importantly, though, I think, too, is that this movement that we've been shaping and kind of shepherding um, is called Red Letter Christians. And we got to get you. I don't know if you're up on there yet, but it's it's you know, we got to get what, what we wanted to do is get all kinds of women and men uh, who are speaking Jesus and justice. And so there, there's a blog, but there's also. Um, a page there called people where you can just see a whole bunch of different folks that are singing this song of Jesus and justice that are talking about immigration and racism and, and all these things, as we're talking about our faith and uh, you're sure one of those. And they're I think that's, that's what's it, what we're doing at redletterchristians.org. Um, we say we're harmonizing, but not homogenizing. <laughs> I, I think that's exactly what we need oh, right now, you know, is, yeah. is unity but not uniformity we need a kind of united front uh, as we challenge the principalities and powers of our time and i'm, I'm grateful always man to stand with you and all this appreciate you so sure. much
0: man thanks for coming on man i really appreciate you
1: you too man well
0: that's it for my conversation with shane claiborne shane thanks so much for coming on the program my man It's always so great for me to be around Shane, to to go to his social media and see the things that he's saying. If you don't have friends like Shane who text me and said, bro, we're going to get arrested to stand up for injustice in D.C., do you want to ride? If you don't have friends like that, you might need some new friends. Listen, I, I, I just I think it's so great what Shane's doing. And I want you to stay in touch with what Shane has going on. So we will have Everywhere you can get in touch with Shane in the show notes. I'd also like to thank Comfort Fit for the music. The song is called Sorry. I'd like to thank all of you from all over the world who have subscribed, who have reviewed, who have rated the podcast. All of that is just so helpful for us to get your feedback. And lastly, I would just like to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. for contending for a better world with us. One conversation at a time we